Hi there, I'm Deb Crow, and I want to welcome you to season four of Imperfect, the heart-centered leadership podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with authentic and courageous leaders from all over the globe. You will learn from leaders you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolkit because leadership belongs to all of us. It is not measured by stature or title. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Imperfect Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. Okay, so I always start off with a comment about why I wanted this person on the show. And Danny Brazell is joining me today. Welcome. You are you and I appreciate it. Oh my gosh. So, so humbling to have you. And you are a thought-out speaker and trainer and coach. And we're we're gonna let you tell the listeners, but I think we're gonna have a lot of fun because you're coined as the PhD of being Jim Carrey. And I couldn't go through a day of my life without a little bit of candor and a little bit of humor, especially in in today's business climate. So I'm I'm really, really excited to interview you and tell our listeners a little bit about you and the phenomenal career that you've had to date. <laughs> thank you for that, Dem. Th- thank you for spreading joy in the world. We need a lot more of you. Uh, that's my mission is to bring joy back into education and the workplace. And so basically I do that in four different ways. I speak over a hundred days a year, primarily to schools and parent groups about, uh, you know, how to get their kids to love reading, how to get their uh, faculty to stay. But I also I also work with some corporations on how to keep your team motivated and inspired. Second of all, I've got the world's top reading engagement program, which in just over two months shows parents how to get their kids to read more, read better, and most importantly, to love reading. Because I find that schools do an adequate job of teaching kids how to read. But the question I always ask people is, well, what good is it teaching a kid how to read if they never want to read? I teach kids why to read because I've never had to tell a kid, go watch TV. I've never had to tell a kid, go play a video game. And I never want to have to tell a kid, go read. I want them to choose to do it because they love it. And there's some simple strategies I share with parents and teachers to get kids excited. Uh, Third, I work with entrepreneurs, business leaders, and executives on how to create powerful presentations that Mm -hmm. get their audience to take the next step, whether that's to purchase their product or to donate to their cause or even just to invest in their idea. And then finally, I'm the North American CEO of a company called CyberSmarties, which was founded in 2015 by Dermot Hudner in Ireland. And it's basically a uh, social media platform for kids that teaches kids uh, how to use social media in a positive way. It's a wonderful well-being product, and it's almost completely eliminated cyberbullying in Ireland, New Zealand, and now I'm in charge of introducing it to the United States. So that's a very long wow. answer, short question, Deb. <laughs> well, and and just to add to, to, you know, to your nuance of success, you've authored 16 books and your latest one is Leadership Begins with Motivation. And I, I want to work that into my questions. But my first leadership question is all around the impact of reading on leadership. And I join you as a new author. I'm I'm the little Nemo that's just jumped into the big, you know, ocean of leadership. But I want to go back and I want to align this with what you just said about kids. How can the impact of reading on leaders? Let's just put them in a in a global on a global sense. Let's all leaders, all sectors. We've heard the cliche growing up that readers are leaders. 
How how can you transfer that impact on reading as eloquent as you've done with what you've done with children, with adults who are in leadership roles and maybe didn't have somebody like you and they were pushed to read and it's it's a nuance for them that they haven't been able to to dig out of to continue or realize how much it fosters their leadership. So can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, I don't know if I've ever agreed with the term readers or leaders, but I definitely can say that effective leaders are always avid readers. Yeah. Uh, and congratulations on your book. How many pages is it? It's 246. Perfect. So I have uh, one of the world's top reading reading programs online book clubs. Uh, it's called lazyreaders.com. And every month, it's a free subscription. I update it with 10 new book recommendations, three or four adult level, three or four young adult level, and three or four children's level books, all under 250 pages. So you have something to read when you're stuck in a boring meeting or at the doctor's office. So we'll definitely have to profile you, Deb. Well, thank um, you. I appreciate that. Well, I think back when I was in high school, uh, I was forced to read The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And no offense to the Nathaniel Hawthorne fans out there, <laughs> but basically the book is about Hester Prynne commits adultery. And so she's forced to wear an A on her chest. And I raised my hand in class one day and I asked my teacher if I could wear a B on my chest because I was so bored reading that book. And really one of the biggest problems I have with the way we teach reading to kids is we force them to read what we call our classics. Well, yeah. what was it? who was it? It was Mark Twain who was excited to finally graduate so he could start actually reading the books he wanted to read, which I completely agree with. All those people out there, and I know there's a lot of leaders out there that they just can't stand reading. You're going to find out whatever you like to read. I, yeah. I say this to parents. I'm like, the little boy who only reads Captain Underpants is going to become a better reader than the little boy who refuses to read anything. Captain Underpants is the gateway drug to Shakespeare. But first, we got to get people interested. And I think the the problem I have with the way we instruct in reading all the time is we force people to read things. Hey, if you want to read a quilting magazine, read a quilting magazine. You want to read the newspaper? Read the newspaper. You know, you want to read John Grisham novels? Read John Grisham novels. You know, uh, the research is very clear on this. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you read. What matters no. is how much you read, whether you're okay. reading James Joyce or James the Giant Peach. People who read more read better. So that's the strategy I would share with all your listeners. Well, and you're building a habit. Yeah. Like, like you said, I... You know, when I'm really stressed or I just want that decompression at the end of the week or even on the weekend, I was never a romance novel kind of girl. But you get them for presents and they can either sit on the shelf or you can dust them off. And I fell in love with short stories. Um, I love reading cookbooks, which a lot of my friends and family think is funny. But when you're cooking... Something, oh, I remember this, and maybe I'll try this. I think it makes us creative in so many other areas of our lives. So I'm so glad that you said that because I fall into that category. Well, and cookbooks are great. I mean, I, oh, I, I love cookbooks. At one point, I had a lot of readers asking me for cookbook recommendations. So that meant, meant I had to read a bunch of cookbooks. And I mean, I read Paula Dean's Fascinating. Oh, uh, I Julia, love her. I absolutely to die for. I love Julia Child. Anthony Bourdain cracks me up. Yeah. Uh, so I, I actually started, I read a whole, uh, oh, who's the guy? Uh, Danny Meyer reading his biography about, uh, he's the guy that creates Shake Shack, but he has some of the most elite uh, restaurants in New York City. I just enjoyed that. That's right. And that's great. And don't be afraid. 
don't be ashamed of the romance too. 40% of book sales in America are romances. So somebody is reading those. <laughs> you know, it's it's the align it's the alignment of, you know, the characters and the nuances of the story and all the different things that happen. And it's the joy of anchoring to a moment with yourself and falling into a story. Well said. Love right. It. Like that to me is I love I, I'm a big reader. Mm-hmm. Okay, the second question has permanent residency on the show, and I've asked over 260 leaders this question, and I'm very excited to ask you, what imperfections does Danny bring to his heart-centered leadership? Well, that's great. I love that question, Deb. I, it's actually the first thing I always train people when they're speaking. I, I, I mean, I do work with some of the biggest speakers in the world, but generally I work with entrepreneurs, executives, or, that they know that speaking will help them uh, increase their performance, improve their sales, things like that. And the first suggestion I always sell, share with people is, uh, well, don't share your successes, share your failures, because yeah. not everybody in your audience has succeeded, but they've all failed. And the more you are able to show your own uh, vulnerability, as Brene Brown really talks about very well in some of her talks, uh, people are going to love you because you're gonna, they're going to realize, oh, this is a person just like me. This isn't political, but I always use the example of President Reagan. President Reagan was a millionaire actor who had a mansion in Bel Air, but he was able to connect with audiences so that GM plant workers in Detroit thought that they could share a beer with him. That's power. And yeah. the, way, the reason they were able to do that is he made fun of himself, which is great. That's that to me. That's true. I don't I don't like people that use humor to put other people down. I like people that that make fun of themselves so yeah that that, uh, that to me is is the uh, the key in any great leaders to uh you know every time you're pointing a finger you got uh, three other fingers and a thumb pointing right back at you so think well about it's leaders. you know you make me think of a story i used to be a neurotrauma case manager and uh, i had quite a diversified eclectic group of people um i did adults and children and I remember at one point I had a Japanese university professor here in Canada on sabbatical and he was in a car accident and sustained a brain injury. So from a social economic and psychosocial profile, he was kind of way up there. And then I had like a badass biker dude that was in a biker gang and he was driving down the road and an elderly woman was backing out of her driveway and she had a seizure and she hit him and he hit a tree and he lost his arm. And so where I'm going with this is you've just made such a great point. It didn't matter where they where they were on the social, economic or psychosocial. So when I went to see the biker guy, I didn't show up in a suit with my briefcase. I went in my jeans and my jean jacket and a clipboard and we sat in the garage because that's his comfort. Mm. When I went to see the university professor, I was in my suit. I had my briefcase, but I was the same person. So this is where my heart-centered leadership and imperfection, which I love talking about, shows up for us. Because it's it's like when the CEO stops to talk to the janitor. Absolutely. Well, and you're following the platinum rule, not the golden rule. The golden rule states, do unto others as they do unto you. And that's incorrect. The platinum rule is do unto others as they want done unto them. Absolutely. I, mean, I, I love football. It's a real reward to me. My wife, trust me, if I want her to come to a football game with me, it is not a reward to her. She's not interested <laughs> in 
find out what she's interested in. <laughs> Very well said. Very well said. All right. I digress, but it was such a good connection. Right. Third question. You know, this sounds like such an easy question, but I know it's not. And, and it's why I want to ask it to you, given the work that you're doing globally. And again, the diversity in the people that you're working with. For our listeners, how can we all become a more effective communicator, especially in today's world of, of upset and uncertainty in the business climate? Yeah, that's a great question, Deb. I, I think begin with uh, listening to podcasts, stop watching the news. Uh, I can already tell you what's on the news tonight. The world's coming to an end and whoever your leader is, is doing a bad job. It's been the same negative news for a hundred years. Uh, we need to start listening to one another a lot more. I think this is a uh, this is another global pandemic as people just decided that they don't need manners and they can, they're entitled to be however they want. And uh, I, I, I try to work with humility and I try to be a constant learner. I work among my many positions. I'm a visiting distinguished professor at the American University in Cairo. Say that five times fast. Uh, and every time I'm in Egypt, I like to go visit surrounding schools. Well, one year I, I went to a, a Muslim school and I was kind of intimidated. I didn't know what to expect. And at, at two o'clock in the afternoon, I had 400 parents show up. 400 parents. It was amazing. Unbelievable. All the guys had the long beards. All the women were in burqas. I thought, uh oh, this is going to be horrible. And we were talking like you and I are talking right now. And I said, shame on me. And I began my presentation. I was teaching them how to get their kids reading. And I said, well, uh, I was reading this great book. Have any of you ever read the Koran? And they all started laughing. I'm like, oh, well, then you know the story when uh, the angel Gabriel appears in the cave to Muhammad. What's the first thing he says to Muhammad? Because the first pillar of Islam is to read. Mm -hmm. And so I looked at the parents. I said, so not only should we get your kids reading, it's actually written in your most sacred document that it's your responsibility to get your kids reading Deb, I had 400 parents nodding their heads. And I'm like, holy cow, who would have thought that the Christian dude's favorite audiences are Muslims? They were in on it. And yeah. it's wonderful. And it's just, a, I, I share that anecdote just because I had all these preconceptions and they were shattered once I actually got in the trenches. And, you know, it's in America, everybody likes to freak out. Oh, it's it's very dangerous around the world. Mm -hmm. It always makes me laugh. When I used to, I used to teach English as a second language uh, to engineering students at the University of Southern California, and I constantly uh, would ask them, well, what's, what's the most dangerous experience you've ever been in? You know, and I had these two guys, and they're like, well, one time we took a, a, a public bus in Los Angeles. I'm like, holy cow, they had been to like war-torn <laughs> regions, but they feared America because it's always portrayed as everybody has a gun. And why wouldn't you think yeah, that? Yeah, the perception, right? Yeah. Wow. And Americans the same. We're all like that. But, you know, even when I, when I was backpacking Europe with my wife, we we had an apartment in, uh, in Prague. And uh, the woman that was renting out her flat to us, she said, oh, don't go to the, the town square at night. And she looks conspiratorially at it and she says, uh, Bulgarians. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, we don't want to be around those Bulgarians. And it doesn't matter what culture you are. You always have to yeah. be better than somebody else. Yeah. You always have to be scared of the unknown. Yeah. And I mean, I've been all over the world. I, I, I still want to see so many more places. 
people are people. That's what I love about your podcast. You're reaching 65 countries and that's fantastic. People need to listen to one another, get to know each other. Well, and and your description from the school in Cairo is the epitome of my definition of heart-centered leadership. You chose to honor your connection with those people. And then you threw in the Jim Carrey and, you know, away you go. Humor has no has no boundaries. Candor has no boundaries. And when people realize that you see them and you hear them and you validate them, you know, I come from the medical world. What's the hardest thing to develop with a patient? Trust and rapport. Mm. That's in every sector. If we don't have trust and rapport, what do we have? They have nothing. That's right. So that's that's a great story. Okay, my last leadership question. It's again, it sounds cliche, but I love it. You talk about never giving up. And I'm I'm a big fan of Ogmandino and the scrolls, and I've listened to them since I was 25, which was a very long time ago. You know, I'm all about waking up. Uh, I'm I'm also a yoga teacher. So my day starts with a meditation. I always listen to a scroll. And, you know, scroll number one is my favorite. Today, I begin a new life. And it's kind of like the never give up thing. But I am really eager to hear why is that a mantra for you and what does it mean to you? Well, it means everything to me, Deb. I mean, uh, uh, look at every successful person uh, and you most of the time you over you, you overlook that they were really successful being a failure for a long time. Uh, there's I look at like. If you're looking at entertainment, I was just commenting the other day, Brian Cranston uh, spent 20, 30 years in acting in obscure roles. And then all of a sudden he, he does Breaking Bad, which is this transformative. Great, great show. Love him. Unbelievable, unbelievable show. Uh, and because of that, he's won so many awards. Now he's he's been nominated for Academy Awards. He's doing films. Um, and But, you know, he didn't, he didn't make it until... He didn't so-called make it until he was in his 50s. I mean, gosh, here I am. I love I love authors. Uh, Frank McCourt had a book called Angela's Ashes that I believe was rejected by over 800 publishers. It wound up finally getting it published and it won the Pulitzer Prize. It did. I'm Irish. I know who Frank McCourt is. That's a, that, that book and movie is heart-wrenching. Oh. Well, it's weird because I grew up Irish Catholic, so it, I had a different take on it. I was laughing throughout the book because it was just like my my entire my family. Yeah, I just I, I mean, my dad wasn't abusive like the, his father, but it was it was just it just made me laugh uh, having his first communion and throwing it up, and then having to go to confession. It just it was wonderful. And gosh, God bless his mom. Um, you look at J.K. Rowling was rejected yeah. so many times. I mean, uh, Theodore Geisel. Uh, had his first book rejected by 28 publishers. The 29th was smart because it was called, and to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street, he changed his name to Dr. Seuss and he was a publishing phenomena. You're showing me somebody that's a a, a success and they went through, I mean, Tiger Woods, I'm a huge golf fan and people look at all, all the tournaments he's won. They don't look at the fact that he was always on the golf course before everybody else. And he was always the last one to leave the golf. Yeah, he, he put, put his time in. Yeah. 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 And, it, and, and this is something you and I appreciate. He has a mental health coach. He has a putting coach. He has a driving coach. I mean, maybe he needed a relationship coach, but he understood 
that if you want to get better, you get a coach there to take you to the right. I mean, I, my wife, the, our toilet broke about three weeks ago and my wife asked me to fix it. And so I called a plumber and she was angry at me. She's like, why did you call the plumber? I'm like, because he knows how to fix the toilet. And she's like, he charges a lot of money. I'm like, I charge a lot of money for my speeches. The reason they hire me yeah. is I'm at it yeah. and they pay me for that service. I'm not going to waste my time trying to fix a toilet that an expert can help just do it a lot more efficiently, no problems. Uh, and probably in the end, he probably saved me money as well. You know, you already mentioned some of the people. Amandino is one of these people that I just said, listen, I mean, or okay, another person in that same realm, personal development, Jack Canfield, one of my yeah. mentors. Yeah. I mean, he had a book uh, that he co wrote with this guy, Mark Victor Hansen. They got 144 rejections. Yeah. Well, kept on going. Yeah. Number 145, they published it. It was called Chicken Soup, Soup for the Soul. For soul. Yeah. The series has sold over half a billion. Half a billion. Yeah. yeah. Half a billion books. He actually gets royalties every. The reason he makes so much money now is because of the Chicken for the Soup, Chicken Soup for the Soul dog food. He gets like a royalty for like. I have no idea, but a lot of money. I mean, Chicken soup diversified to a lot of different places and spaces. Yeah. And you know what? Good for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like that you just said that too, Deb, is uh, jealousy is just the most unattractive thing in the world to me. It is. I have, and so, it's, it's right up there with comparison. Like, yeah, I'm we're all on our own journey. Um, so I normally don't talk about this, but I will because it's in this sphere of our conversation the imposter syndrome that I had a week before I was submitting my manuscript, I remember my revisional editor looking at me and we're just like this on Zoom. And I said, Whitney, I think I'm just going to shelf it. And I I had tears like kids, like bouncing off my cheeks. And, and she let me go. I probably went for like five minutes. And then she said, this book is going to heal the world. So she goes, get a tissue and I need you to turn to page whatever. And we need to rework this one paragraph. Like she just totally redirected. And then she said, I've been waiting four weeks for you to show up here. And she's like, you're right where I wanted. And she's written like eight or nine books. And she said, it's time. And, and the scary part wasn't writing the book. The scary part was the initial book being put out so people could see your thought leadership. Mm. That is scary. And now, you know, my goal for my book was if it has a small little ripple effect to heal the world, that's my intent. Uh, it's, it's not a typical leadership book because I believe, and this is how it's been described, it's my life journey. So it's one-third memoir, it's one third what you'd see in a leadership book. It's got the research, all the sightings, all the great case studies, and then all my own original work around heart-centered leadership and my own model. People like it because I share my vulnerability and show all the curves, all the U-turns, all the full stops, and then never giving up and going, okay, today I begin a new life. I'm going to go this way and this is what I'm going to do. And I think a lot of people think it, and I think we need to share it more. Because yeah. when we share the failures and the imperfections, which is why I created this show, that's what really allows us to lock arms and go, wow, you too? Because yeah. we get caught up in all the extrinsic values of a title or a fancy office or whatever it may be. 
at the end of the day, we're all just people. You know, my Irish nana used to say, we all get up in the morning and put our pants on the same way. Yeah, it's the truth. I mean, and think about it. Nothing worth having comes easy. Yeah. Struggle for, I mean, I, the book I'm writing right now. So the last book I wrote, Leadership Begins with Motivation. After I, it was kind of a, when I was in middle school, I've taught all age levels, but when I taught middle school, I was the only teacher that had no tardy students. And it's because I always started off class reading a Paul Harvey story. Uh, I grew up listening to Paul Harvey on the radio. Every day he'd come on at 12, 15 and say, I'm Paul Harvey with the rest of the story. The whole time you're trying to figure out what's he, who's he what's talking he gonna about? What's he going to say? Yeah. Yeah. My kids loved that. But a lot of his stories were about Sears and Roebuck. Well, kids today don't know who Sears and Roebuck are. And so my book was an homage with updated people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and everything. But after I wrote it, Deb, completely unintentionally, I'm reading it. I'm like, wow, so many of my examples are of white male Americans. And so the book I'm writing right now is the same type of book, but almost exclusively are women, minorities, and international examples. And there's a story you'd like uh, in there about these two women. They're choreographers of, on Broadway and uh, one was named Martha, the other one was named Agnes. And Agnes had just opened up her third show and fans seemed to like it, but the critics just destroyed her. And she looks at her friend Martha. She's like, I'm just going to, I'm going to close it down. And Martha served the role of your editor said, hey, no, it's not your job to critique your own work. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not, you shouldn't lessen that anybody else critique your own work, you know, you have to understand there's only one you. There's never going to be another you, and there hasn't been one like you before. And if you close this down, you are denying the world this play. And so Martha, it turned out, was Martha Graham. She's the mother of modern dance. She won Kennedy Center Honors, Presidential Medal of Freedom, everything. Agnes was Agnes DeMille. She won the same honors, and she became the very first woman to have three concurrent hits on broad hit musicals on Broadway. Wow. Um, and that play that she decided not to close down, she agreed with the producers just to rename it Oklahoma. Oh my gosh, what a story! <laughs> God bless Agnes. Yeah. All right, I'm going to pivot to my Fab Four. These are just four rapid questions just to see what's on the top of that brilliant reading mind of yours. (laughs) Name a word or a phrase that shows up in your leadership daily. Simplify. Name a book. This will be fun. Anytime that you've read in your life, what's the name of the book? Who's the author and why was it so impactful? Well, I could get a lot of different books, but I like to throw people off because uh, one of my favorite things is to get people reading children's books. And so I'd say Where the Wild Things Are by Marie Sendak. Uh, I was a curious, mischievous little boy, and it brings a smile to my face. Uh, anytime I've ever read it, it brings a smile. It just shows me the power of creativity um, and uh, how to overcome your environment. I love that. Okay, let me give you context for the third question. I'm granting you a wish and you get to have dinner with any leader of your choice. This leader may be living or they may have passed away. Who are you having dinner with and what is the dinner conversation? This is going to sound pathetic. I, I was asked something similar a couple of days ago. I'm going to, I'm going to choose a living person because they, they said it had to be a living. And so I already have the answer. It, it sounds bizarre. It would be Steven Spielberg. I mm. He's, he just fascinates me. He's done so much. He's never let anybody put him in a box. 
And uh, he went for it. It's just an incredible role model to me. And uh, he's also done so much good with the power that he's attained. Absolutely. He's he's actually been brought up on the show before. That's a he's he's definitely admirable for sure. Okay, before I have you finish the last question, I just want to say I knew this was gonna be a great conversation. You're one of those people that you get on a Zoom call and you're like, okay, let's just forget the rest of the day. Okay, let's talk <laughs> about this and let's go here and there. So happy we've connected and I, I look forward to our next conversation and congrats on your book. And we're gonna put all the info below in the podcast episode description. Well, and I did want to offer as a, as a thank you to you, Deb, and to your audience uh, for bearing with me. Uh, I wanted to give everybody a couple of freebies. So if you go to freegiftfromdanny.com, again, freegiftfromdanny.com, okay. I'm going to give everybody a complimentary e-copy of my book, Read, Lead, and Succeed. Oh, this wow. is a book I wrote for a school principal who was trying to keep his faculty and staff positively engaged. So I said, okay, I'll write you a book. So every week I give you a concept, an inspirational quote, an inspirational story, a book recommendation on a book you should read, but you're probably too lazy because you're an adult. So I also give you a children's picture book recommendation. You can read that in five minutes. It'll get to bring a smile to your face, demonstrates the same concept. I'm also going to give you access to a five-day reading challenge I did online last summer for about 700 parents around the world, where every day for an hour, I share all kinds of strategies on how you can get your kid to read more, read better, most importantly, to love reading. Uh, and that's okay. that free gift from Dan Karakram. And I, I just, uh, I'm so grateful for this opportunity, Deb, and I'm so excited to be able to read your book. Well, I'm going to get your address when we get off recording, <laughs> and I'm going to send you a copy of my book for being on my show and for being heart-centered. So close out the show by finishing this sentence for me. Heart-centered leadership is? Essential. Thanks so much for joining me today on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the show today and have learned some new tools for your leadership toolkit from our amazing Heart-Centered guest. If you like the show, feel free to give us a rating and a review, and we always welcome your feedback anytime. If you're ready to master the art of heart, my new book, The Heart-Centered Leadership Playbook, is now available on Amazon, or you can click the link below in our description. <laughs>